Good afternoon. I'd like to welcome you to this talk. Um, our speaker today is David Messenger, who is an assistant professor of history at the University of Wyoming. The topic of this talk is Beyond War Crimes, Denazification, National Security, and American Deportation and Internment of SS Agents After World War II. David is a visiting scholar at the Mershon Center for the rainy month of May. Um, he has a Ph.D. from the University of Toronto. He's the author of six articles and of the book L'Espagne Républicaine, French Policy and Spanish Republicanism in Liberated France. Um, he is now working on this book, of which this talk is a prelude about Allied intelligence and the hunt for Nazi war criminals and goods in Spain and other neutral countries after World War II. David Messenger. Thank you. Uh, thank you, everyone. Thank you for coming. Thank you to the Mershon Center for having me uh, and for Carol Fink and uh, encouraging me to come here. Uh, I'm glad you could all make it. I'm going to start on September 10th, 1945 in Berlin, where the occupying powers of Germany, Great Britain, France, the Soviet Union, and the United States, acting as the Allied Control Commission, the ACC, passed a resolution ordering all Germans who'd been officials or intelligence agents of the previous Nazi regime and now found themselves in neutral countries to return to Germany. Furthermore, the ACC requested that the governments in these states where Germans were, were themselves to act to round up and deport these Germans to territory under the control of the ACC. Later that week, a new organization known as the Combined Repatriation Executive was created inside of Germany to see this policy through and act both in Germany and through the embassies of ACC states in the targeted countries, which were Afghanistan, Ireland, Portugal, Spain, Sweden, Switzerland, the international city of Tangiers, and Vatican City. In the documents relating to this policy and creating the combined repatriation executive, the phrase obnoxious Germans is used to identify these individuals sought for repatriation. And the term was in fact not new to these documents, had been bandied about in a number of other places. And later in 1946, uh, this term was actually given an official definition by the ACC. So what I'm going to talk about is what, who were these obnoxious Germans, as they were officially called, uh, and how did they relate to other policies going on, in particular, denazification going on in occupied Germany? What was the connection between these obnoxious Germans in neutral countries, uh, in the targeted countries, and the denazification process going on inside of occupied Germany? Primarily from American uh, perspective in the American zone, but also being an allied policy, we use some British documents uh, as well to talk about this. Um, and my case study is primarily in Spain, which had the highest number of these obnoxious Germans identified, approximately 1,600 identified, which was far larger than any of the other sort of targeted countries. Um, the book that I'm working on brings in material from Portugal and Switzerland and a couple of the other states as well, but primarily is based on, on work in Spain. Denazification. When I'm going to use that phrase today, I'm going to take its sort of more limited definition. The broadest definition we could probably have is defined by Perry Bittescombe is, quote, the full range of allied Soviet reform and punishment measures in occupied Germany, unquote. But the more specific way it's often used is, quote, the specific liquidation of the National Socialist Party and the elimination of its influence in government and business. And that's the way I'm going to use the term to specifically look at ridding Germany of Nazi Party and Nazi Party entities. We can trace the origins of concern about obnoxious Germans to the development of war crimes policy. October of 1943, at a meeting of Britain, the Soviet Union, United States, and Moscow, 
there was a discussion about war crimes policy and the decision to separate or distinguish between those who would require an international trial uh, under the auspices of the Allied powers or those who would commit who had committed war crimes in single countries and therefore would be given to those countries to try and prosecute under their own laws. Following that, October of 1943, there's a series of development of policies uh, around war criminals and distinguishing in war criminals. But soon enough in this process, it became clear that there would be lots of individuals who would not count as war criminals, but still posed security threats or concerns to the Allies. In the United States, this came through in the military supreme headquarters of the Allied Expeditionary Force under General Dwight Eisenhower that began in 1944 planning for the occupation of Germany by preparing its handbook for military government in Germany. And in this handbook, they decided that this second group of Nazis would be subject to automatic arrest. And this included members of the Gestapo and the SS, and in particular, uh, to, we have the SS. Members of the Gestapo, members of the Abwehr, which was the military intelligence wing of the German army, and in particular, members of the SD, the Sicherheitsdienst, uh, my German is very bad, um, which was the security service of the SS that individuals who were parts of these organizations would be subject to automatic arrest when the army occupied Germany. Uh, this is not just something happening in the military, in the uh, Office of Strategic Services, the OSS, the predecessor to the CIA. Similar sorts of ideas were developing when they talked about occupation and planning um, for, for the military occupation of Germany. Later on, in 1945, May of 1945, Joint Chiefs of Staff Resolution 1060 uh, adopted these definitions of groups of people who would be subject to automatic arrest, although it modified it somewhat by giving local commanders the ability to use their own discretion to decide who should be actually arrested. So you have already then, in thinking about the occupation of Germany, groups of people who are not war criminals, who did not violate... Um, you know, the, the laws of war in the field, but who are deemed to be security risks because of their affiliation with these groups, uh, because they were deemed to be sort of the hardcore of the Nazi party if they had participated in some of these groups, or they had been involved in espionage or um, military work uh, of that nature. Almost at the same time, there's a translation of this outside um, of Germany. And it starts in the neutral countries first economically. There is a great fear that the Nazis were going to try and hide money, hide assets in the neutral countries of Europe because they had been trading with those countries, they had extensive economic ties with those countries, and that this money, uh, these resources would be used down the road to reinvigorate the Nazi movement. So at the same time that they're thinking about who are potential security threats but not war criminals, they're also thinking of Nazis transferring money to neutral states, and they decide to target those Nazis and other members uh, of the German colony in these states who they know have been doing business you know, throughout the war in these neutral countries. And it turns out that a large number of those people were SS, SD, or Abwehr, or Gestapo individuals, so the same sorts of groups that have been targeted inside of occupied Germany. So this is how these sorts of two things come together. What starts out in the neutral states as being concerned about Nazi money leads to a focus on individuals. Those individuals are members of groups that if they had been in Germany would have been subject to automatic arrest. So by the time you get to April and May of 1945, these sorts of two lines of post-war planning have come together and created this category uh, that they called obnoxious Germans. People to be concerned about in these neutral states because if they had been in Germany, they would be under arrest or subject to automatic arrest. So it starts out 
um, in this way. How can we bring that back to denazification? If you think of denazification as a requirement for some sort of imposed transition of a regime from one regime to the other by purging the government of people like this, the people subject to automatic arrest, you prepared the ground for whatever was going to come next. How would that work inside of a neutral country? Well, first of all, the Allied powers had no authority to arrest anyone in neutral countries. They would rely upon the neutral states to do this themselves. The ACC resolution of September 1945 called upon neutral states to carry this out. But these states are under no obligation. They're not part of the ACC. Um, they're under no obligation to do this from a you know, point of view of sovereignty. However, when you dealt with some of these neutral states, and Spain's the best example, these were not democracies. These were dictatorships uh, in Spain under Francisco Franco. And there was no intention of forcing those governments to themselves transition or transform themselves into democracy. But they still had to prove themselves in the post-war period because they had been so cooperative with Nazi Germany during the war. And so this becomes a policy, if we could look at it inside of Germany and say purging members of these groups from positions of authority in Germany as part of Germany's transition, then part of Spain's transition is turning these types of people over to prove that Spain is cutting its ties with Nazism and with fascism in a way that does not require it to change its regime or change its nature, but does require it to sort of account for some of what had gone on during the war. And this can be really linked to some new ideas uh, of neutrality that are kind of developing at this time after the war. Without officially declaring war, the regime of Francisco Franco had been involved in close economic and political relations with the Axis states during most of the war. Legally, Spain started out the war as neutral, then in June of 1940 declared itself as a non-belligerent, and then in October of 43 went back to neutral. This category of non-belligerency was new and unique to the Second World War. It had previously been used by Italy between 1939 and 1940, when they did not declare war at the same time as Nazi Germany, declared themselves a non-belligerent, however, dropping the neutral status to prepare for what eventually became their entrance into the war in 1940. And of course, when Spain switched from neutral to non-belligerent, the assumption was it would follow the same path as Italy and eventually join the war. It didn't and went back to neutrality in 1943. In practical terms, however, uh, Spain was very pro-Nazi uh, throughout the war in carrying out economic trade, and increased Gestapo presence in Spain, military ties, uh, including refueling of German submarines at Spanish ports, um, collecting down German seamen or airmen and returning them to Germany, as well as having a volunteer brigade fight with German troops on the Russian front uh, between 1941 uh, and 44. In response, Allied powers carried out policies that they called economic warfare, basically trying to purchase material from Spain at higher prices than uh, the, the Germans were paying in order to prevent the Spaniards from selling that important material, war material, to the Germans. British actions went so far as to involve the bribery of Spanish generals, uh, and there were other associated uh, policies with this. So there's this sense in the war that non-belligerency meant something very close to being a belligerent and further away from neutrality, and Spanish accents seemed to match that up. Even though in 1943, when Franco goes back to neutrality and does adopt a series of more pro-Allied policies, there was still this sense that the regime in its heart favored the Nazis and favored the Axis powers. And so by the time you get to the end of the war, William Slaney uh, has written, you have a complex phenomenon of neutrality that was not the same neutrality that had been interpreted previously. 
previous neutrality, if you go back to the Hague Laws of uh, Convention of 1907 or other uh, ideas about neutrality, simply said there was no question of morality in neutrality. Neutrality truly meant you were not taking a moral position on one side or the other. Slaney argues that after World War II, uh, any position that's distinct from moral considerations was more difficult to take place. And that was part of the post-war planning then, is not only how do you deal with the moral consequences of Nazism, but how do you deal with the moral consequences of Nazi uh, Germany's allies and these neutral states or non-belligerent states that had clearly favored Nazi Germany. The first response, the response that most people have looked at has been Operation Safe Haven, this pursuit of uh, Nazi assets, quantified, uh, uh, outlined first by the United States and then uh, made official at the Bretton Woods Conference in 1944 that basically gave um, the ACC and Allied powers the right to investigate German assets in neutral countries and demanded that those neutral countries turn over, seize and turn over these assets. Um, that... The rationale for this in the U.S. government, and this comes from the Executive Committee on Economic Foreign Policy in December of 1944, was, quote, that neutral and non-belligerent states contributed in greater or less degree to German purposes, unquote, and that, therefore, this justified the taking of U.S. resources to investigate the hiding of money in these states. Well, the policy then gets applied equally to... Um, to these obnoxious Germans, or the right to investigate these individuals and demand their repatriation back to ACC territory, which was the territory of occupied Germany. In fact, the Foreign Economic Administration, the arm of the American government that played a major role in conceptualizing safe haven, used the word denazification to, to define its own policies or its own actions uh, as the rationale for what they were doing. So you could argue here that what was happening in changing these ideas about neutrality or what's responsible for neutrality was in some ways a parallel to what happened with Nuremberg and the International Military Tribunal in creating new definitions or new responsibilities that come with these international legal terms. And in this case, there's a revolution of a kind in thinking about what are the requirements of neutrality and what are the responsibilities or obligations of neutrals after the war? So you could take ideas about transition and responsibility and you know, sweeping the deck clean that we would ordinarily apply to occupied states and now apply that to neutrals as well. And I think this policy of hunting down these obnoxious Germans and getting them sent out of Spain was an example um, of that. Having said that, you couldn't carry it out the same way you could carry out denazification inside of occupied Germany. You relied upon the Spanish government to arrest and deport these individuals in order for the allies to be able to carry out their side of the policy, which would be their automatic arrest of these individuals once they were on actual German territory. So this was the challenge uh, that was basically created. With these new ideas of responsibility, obligations of neutrals, demand to see some sort of transition away from what was considered to be a pro-Nazi or pro-Axis neutrality, um, you couldn't enforce it in the same way that you could carry it out in an occupied zone. So what was the situation in Spain uh, at that time? Before the war started, 1939, it's about 7,500 Germans living in Spain. By 1945, that number had grown to 20,000. The sorts of three groups of these Germans, a small group, most of that 7,500 involved in businesses and other activities had come to Spain in the 19-teens uh, or in the 1920s and settled. A large number uh, are set in the Spanish Civil War who stayed. And then the largest group who came at some point between 1940 and 1944, sent by the German government for the most part for military, intelligence, diplomatic, cultural, economic reasons. So almost all of this last group, which was the single largest group, 
had come because of the war and had come in an official capacity. Just as the Allied powers were following the economic policies of Nazi Germany and trying to prevent the selling of military materials to the Germans, they also were very aware of intelligence activities. Allied officials assumed that at any moment, the Franco regime could decide to join the war or join the Axis, at least up until 1940, end of 42, early 1943. This was the common uh, belief. And so activities of these intelligence agents were another way to measure the significance of Spain's adherence to neutrality, just like their trade with whether it was more Axis or more allied was a way to measure that. So policies were put in place by British and American intelligence units to track these Nazi agents and to identify who was part of whichever group as people came and entered into Spain. And so by the end of uh, May of 1944, an agreement was made with the Spanish government to limit its trade uh, with Germany, the first time the Spanish government had agreed to do that. And as an attachment to this agreement, was a request by the British and the United States for Spain to deport 222 Nazi agents who'd been identified through the work of the OSS and British intelligence. December of 1944, so six months basically after this agreement had been signed, the Franco government reported back to the Allies that 750 Germans had been interned at various camps. However, upon looking at these lists, most of these Germans who'd been, who were being held in Spanish camps were Germans who had crossed from France in August of 1944 when France was liberated and were not the members of this list who'd been given as uh, agents inside of Spain or had been active in Spain <laughs> during the war. And this is still the situation when the war ends in May of 1945. So this failure to deport German agents during the last year of the war suggested to the Allies that a new policy was needed, in addition to the policies connected with safe haven, for the Spanish regime to prove, once again, its true neutrality or its coming to terms with its own uh, position. And this is the policy of the obnoxious Germans, given official sanction in September of 45 with that resolution of the ACC, but which, in, in effect, began in these countries in 1944. What else was happening at this time in American policy? March of 1945, a new American ambassador was appointed by Franklin Roosevelt. And he was issued a letter named Norman Armour. And Armour received a letter from Roosevelt outlining his task as ambassador, which was underlining that the Franco regime was considered by the United States to have been a close ally of Nazi Germany and significant internal and external changes were needed in order for Spain to be welcomed back uh, into the sort of community of nations. There's a lot of ideological grounds for this, not only from FDR personally, but within the State Department and within the OSS at the end of the war, that regimes like Franco's also needed to go. Although no one ever went as far as to actually make that American policy ideas that the Franco regime could be encouraged to transition itself into something more resembling a democracy was necessary. FDR never wanted to go quite this far, but certainly was underlining that there'd be a shift in policy. If the war, if during war the United States had tolerated Franco's government, they wanted to see significant changes in the second period. There's never, again, a desire to uh, support a regime change or to support an overthrow of the government. There was a belief that if there was something like that, civil war would only resume like it had before the Second World War. Or if a group was to come to power, it would likely be the communists, uh, which was not something that anyone wanted to see. So an idea of a regime change was out of the question. However, they wanted to see areas of measurement that would prove that Franco was moving away from fascism in his regime. And this policy of then 
turning over these obnoxious Germans becomes one of those. So how would this be measured? Firstly, U.S. intelligence would supply lists of these names like they had in 1944 and would then want to see what the Spanish government did with this, this list of names. Were these people arrested? Were they interned? And ultimately, were they deported back to Germany? So that would be one way of measuring this fact. The second measure, maintain American intelligence inside of Spain with the mission of tracking these Nazis and various groups of Nazis in order to see what they were trying to do uh, and assess whether they were continuing to be a security threat to the United States or to the settlement of the post-war in Europe. Uh, in both of these respects, quickly things became kind of depressing. On the one hand, you had this initial allied list of 222 created in 1944. A second list was given to the Spaniards in the fall of 1945 of 255 individuals who were considered top priority and then various other groupings of people to get to that total number of Nazi agents identified as 1,600. But 255 were given top priority. It was underlined that the ACC had called for these people to be sent back to Germany. The foreign ministry, however, insisted uh, of Spain insisted first that they would never accept Allied evidence of these people's uh, work in espionage until they had verified it themselves. So they would they would take the Allied evidence, but they would not act on Allied evidence alone. They would carry out their own investigations and then decide what to do with these people. Exceptions would be made for those who had ties to Spain. Ties to Spain would include marriage to a Spanish citizen uh, or years in Spain if their service in Spain predated the Spanish Civil War. And many of them had, in fact, because the Abwehr in particular had recruited Germans who'd been in Spain since the 1920s for the most part for espionage activities during the Civil War and the war. On top of this, in January of 1946, the Spanish government admitted that it had never actually informed Germans of the ACC decree demanding their return to Germany. They had only told the former ambassador, German ambassador, who himself was wanted for repatriation, but since he no longer was the German ambassador, he had no obligation to spread that throughout the German colony. So this was not only a policy not being carried out by the Spanish government, it was a policy that was not even that well known amongst Germans in Spain in the first few months of its existence. That led one member of the British embassy to comment that what the Spanish wanted was in Spain, quote, a hardcore of obnoxious Germans some of whom it may need nothing less than the demise of the Franco regime itself to get shifted back to Germany. The U.S. in general pushed the Spanish government more than the British in terms of demanding their fulfillment uh, of carrying out this policy uh, towards obnoxious Germans. The second thing that, uh, and again, this is more so the American government than the British, was to maintain OSS operations in Spain um, in the, through the summer of 45, and then that gets transferred over as the OSS uh, ends, becomes the Strategic Services Unit of the War Department before becoming the CIA in 1947. Um, but throughout this whole time, there's active military op or active intelligence operations following these Nazis in Spain. The name that they were given in American documents is called werewolf groups, which is more commonly a term used in occupied Germany, came, coming to mean groups to carry out sort of guerrilla attacks aimed at the occupier. In Spain, they weren't used in this way as guerrilla attacks, but basically any group that constituted itself as Nazis, Nazis identifying themselves as Nazis in some form of an organized group, and they could be small groups, they could be large groups, Generally speaking, they were led or organized by members of the SS or Gestapo uh, coming out of the German embassy. They were engaged in a variety of activities. 
the head of the Nazi party in Spain at the end of the war, Hans Thompson, uh, created one of these groups with the intent of threatening uh, non-Nazi Germans who might turn in people in the German colony that they knew were members of the party. Uh, another uh, group wanted to raise money by basically buying up sports clubs across Spain, and the extra money, the profit that would be generated would go back to be used for Nazi uh, activities. This is not a majority of the German community, but it's a significant group, and especially these individuals identified as the top priority list of 255. So we might ask ourselves, what's the real threat of these individuals? By all accounts, none of them wanted to go back to Germany. They wanted to stay in Spain. So if they're going to stay in Spain, what is the real threat um, to American post-war policy? On one level, the threat uh, is that the U.S. has declared they want to arrest these people, they want to carry through that policy. On another level, you have the desire of the Spanish government to prove itself as understanding the new post-war situation. So if the Spanish government seemingly doesn't care about these, this group of people, that bodes ill for Franco's position in the world, or position in Europe. But there's a third area, too. These individuals were not thought of it, uh, only in an individual context as this person who is avoiding arrest or who's staying in hiding or just doesn't want to go back to Germany. This belief that by constituting themselves in groups as Nazis and by identifying themselves as Nazis, that they still wanted to carry on the ideology of Nazism. And moreover, because these individuals had contacts high up in the Franco government, that they would, in fact, influence the direction of the Franco regime down the road. That would prevent that transition to a less fascist uh, Franco regime and could, in fact, create a more pro-fascist Franco regime, even though fascism and Nazism had been defeated in the war. And uh, I've looked a little bit uh, at some of the literature from transitional justice theorists and they have this category called spoilers. And this is essentially uh, what these individuals were thought of. Defined broadly, spoilers are groups, uh, individuals and small groups that take advantage of structural failures within the political process during the time of transition from war to peace. Usually, that term spoiler is used in the Civil War context and, and primarily at guerrilla groups or violent groups that want to carry on or continue violence after a peace settlement. This is obviously not quite um, at that level. But still, this idea that there existed a small group from the previous era's elite who wanted to mess up or um, divert in some way the peace process, I think applies here. This group wanted to continue to influence the Franco regime. The Franco regime, therefore, theoretically, would be less and less like the rest of Western Europe in the post-war. And I think this is how the American government and the OSS in particular um, talked about the potential uh, of these Nazis. Not that they were going to take over the Franco regime. The Franco regime only partially was fascist. There were other elements of traditional authoritarianism, elements from the church, elements from the military um, that influenced the regime. But that there was a fascist element in the Spanish fascist party, the Falange. That's who these people had contacts with, and they could work to influence the regime. There was also a belief that these individuals weren't, didn't simply want to stay at Spain and lay low and you know, open up a laundromat. These individuals wanted to continue to have positions of influence in the military an espionage manner, and we're going to use their contacts with the government to influence the Spanish government in some way. So they're not in any position to actually wreck the peace settlement or change the course of the war's outcome, but it's a more subtle threat to deal with the perpetuation of Nazism or fascism in the Spanish regime. Spoiler literature also looks at patrons, the role of patrons, who might be slow to realize 
the illegitimacy of spoiler action. And, and this is definitely something that you could see in Spain, whereby individuals in the Falange, in the security services, in the national police, who'd spent years working with these people were reluctant to then act upon arresting these people um, and things, things like that. In May of 1945, the uh, OSS in Madrid set out lines of investigation that would allow them to measure what I call this sort of extent of spoiler activity. And very much this question of influence or influence over the Spanish regime becomes very important. Their lines of inquiry were continued use of German parastate organizations like German schools or the German Ibero-American Institute in Madrid to influence ideas and ideology of the Spanish regime. The continuation of Nazi propaganda in the local press, uh, particularly where they had ties directly to Nazi journalists who were based in Spain. And finally, the continued role of German economic resources in local economies. And so here I think there's a direct link to this idea of that these people were not going to upset the regime but that, uh, or upset the peace, but that they could act as spoilers and continue some level of Nazi influence in Spain. And if you look at the reports on these werewolf groups and other, these are sort of the lines of inquiry. Who are their Spanish friends? What are they doing outside of the German colony? What are they doing inside of the German colony? To give you one example, a woman by the name of Clarita Stauffer. She was born in Spain to a German father who'd come in the 1880s to work in the brewing industry. She had a German passport and a Spanish passport and was a national secretary of the women's section of the Falange, the Spanish fascist party. In the fall of 1945, she created the Hilferein, or an um, aid agency to collect clothes, money, and food for Germans being held in these camps by the Spaniards, the Germans they'd round up as espionage agents in 1944. She also, when these individuals got out of these camps, as they routinely did, would find employment for these Germans in the military or in the Falange, was their preferred places of employment. She used her Spanish contacts for that. When it soon became clear that these options were not open for most of them, that the Spanish government was at least understanding the message that you shouldn't hire ex-Nazi agents, um, she then transitioned into finding hiding places for them before uh, these people could be arrested or threatened with arrest. Based in Madrid, she traveled to San Sebastian and Barcelona starting at the end of 1945. By mid-46, she was active in establishing a series of hiding places in homes in rural areas of central Spain. And by 1947, she'd become linked with Father Jose Labuz, who was a German Catholic priest, who has now been shown by Michael Fair to have been the leader of the Spanish rat line, which took war criminals from Italian territory in the Vatican to Spain and then on to Argentina. Uh, and these networks were very well associated, these rat lines, with the SD and were not used only by prominent war criminals, but also by these sorts of obnoxious Germans, especially in Spain, where they had access to participate in this rat line rather easily. She also had many contacts with the Securidad Nacional, or the National Police of Spain. In fact, they would petition the National Police to release Germans held in these internment camps by the Spanish, and upon the release would take them into the hiding and eventually move them on to Argentina. Here again in the United States documents associated with Stauffer, you see a lot of the language associated with spoilers and this potential of spoilers. Uh, the head of this policy in the U.S. Embassy was a man by the name of Earl Titus, responsible for repatriation policy. He lodged a series of complaints about Stauffer with the Spanish police in November of 1946. And his folder on Stauffer goes from 45 right through to 1949. In 1947, this Hilferein that she organized actually started taking out ads in newspapers asking for Spaniards to give money to help these Germans 
although they were called Central Europeans in the ads, uh, leading Titus to write that this group was determined to give back to Nazi elements uh, material and other resources to, quote, rally the Nazi-minded Germans and reestablish their influence in Spain. So this goes right through for him, 47, 48, and 1949. This idea of a resurgent Nazi community then is sort of a re-articulation. They don't emerge in positions of power in 1945 or 46 in the Spanish government, but they're still hanging around. So by 1947 or 48, it's this fear of a resurgent kind of German community. Other areas of concern to national security. So one area was to carry out denazification. Now, we all know that that petered out in Germany in 1946 and 47, and especially by 1948, so that becomes less of a concern. Titus, however, still believes this idea of influence over the Spanish regime is significant right through 47, 48, and 49. And from what I've seen in the OSS and CIA documents, um, they also know are, are with him on this belief as late as 1948, um, at least those who'd been in Spain for some time. Uh, the second concern is that it could wreck what was going on in Germany. The second concern was that these individuals could influence German opinion in some way and turn people against the American occupation inside of Germany, which was also happening on its own uh, relating especially to denazification. And the final concern that Titus had is as more of these individuals made their way to Argentina, particularly into the Argentine military, which had no hesitation recruiting many of these individuals, that there would be a threat to American security in the Western Hemisphere. So for all of these reasons, um, this idea of obnoxious Germans as a security threat, as part of denazification, and as part of emerging uh, other concerns about American national security in post-war Europe uh, were there. Now, if we look at a pure numeric number, this policy failed. Of the 1,600 people identified uh, in the initial census of Germans who, who needed to be repatriated from the German colony of 20,000, uh, approximately 265 were. Others especially those of lesser significance, often did go back to Germany on their own. It's kind of hard to come up with a number for those people. But it's safe to say that the vast majority of the 1,600 stayed in Spain. The policy changed that this priority list of 255 people became a final list of 104, agreed upon by the British and American governments in October of 1947 that basically the Americans and the British said to the Spanish government, if you deport these 104 people, then we'll call it good. None of those 104 people ever were arrested or deported from Spain. So if we look at just on that basis, this policy failed. On the other hand, uh, I think there's some ways we could measure that this policy was somewhat of a success. Lower-level Germans, generally speaking, adhered to this policy, and some of them went back on their own or turned themselves into the Americans or the British. Usually, if they were low-level enough, they did not have a Spanish patron or protector uh, in the security system. So a good example, I'll just uh, conclude with a few examples. Alfred Zhirinovsky, based in Bilbao. He was in charge of running uh, agents for the Abwehr, during the war, he'd been in Bilbao since the 1920s and married a Spanish woman. Usually this would exempt him from being rounded up. Um, however, he didn't have any close friends in the local uh, Falange, so he moved to Madrid and turned himself in to American authorities, who along with the British had actually created a repatriation center for Germans in Madrid for those who wanted to turn themselves in. He was deported, held in an internment camp in the U.S. zone for approximately four weeks, and then released in 1946. After interrogation, both in Spain and in Germany, he was decided that as a member of the Abwehr, who'd basically been responsible for running messages back and forth across the French-Spanish border, he was not um, all that significant. 
Second case, Carl Arnold, the last head of the SD in Spain, so a much more significant individual, went underground in May of 1945 with six months worth of his annual budget in his hands, distributed some of the money to a couple of other agents, and then was arrested in June uh, of 1945 by the Spaniards, used 60,000 of his remaining 100,000 pesetas to pay off the Spanish government to release him. And then he gave his official German government car to his lawyer for his assistance. He then set up a small translation company with the money he had left and used his contacts in Spanish intelligence to translate German government documents that had been captured with the closing of the embassy by the Spanish government into Spanish and made a nice little uh, business out of this. However, he was constantly afraid of being turned in because he was one of the top 255 people on the list. So he took his espionage equipment, his cameras and recording devices, and once a month gave it to an individual he knew in Spanish military intelligence in return for not being turned in. This lasted for about a year. Arnold lived openly in Madrid, established his business that proved to be fairly successful. However, uh, eventually he ran out of equipment and fearing for his uh, freedom, he went underground through the network of Claudia de Stauffer obtained false documents in the name of Carlos Kleibel, the son of a Swiss mother and Spanish father, and went to live in the middle of nowhere in one of these houses that Stauffer had found for him. Eventually, however, when he ran out of all his money, his lawyer turned him in to the Spanish police, who then promptly gave him to the Americans, who put him on a plane back to Germany. He attempted to kill, commit suicide while being boarded on the plane, and was therefore unconscious in the whole plane ride, interned at Hohenasberg, which was a civilian internment camp, number 76, in the U.S. zone, where all obnoxious Germans were sent for interrogation, January of 1946. The last record I could find of him, April 1948, he is still in that internment camp. Um, never charged, never put on trial in, in Germany. And then finally, one last uh, Case Otto Henriksen. He'd been in Spain since 1914, setting up a typewriter business, joined the Condor Legion uh, in the civil, Spanish Civil War, fighting with the German uh, Luftwaffe, and became the head of the NSDAP party in the Basque lands um, by the time the war started. He was officially a member of the Abwehr, but the uh, US government suspected he was also part of the SD because he carried on a bunch of other activities for the German embassy and the German military that did not fit what the Abwehr uh, agents usually did. He was also, in May of 1945, involved in smuggling of documents and money from the German consulate in Bilbao. He was arrested in May of 1945 by Spanish authorities, put in a camp, and then released in 1946. Uh, at this point, the United States government requested his expulsion, as well as that of his daughter, who also um, was a German agent. Uh, in fact, he was, uh, this was ignored. Even though the Spanish had had him in custody for about eight months, they never rearrested him. Uh, his business officially was transferred to a Spaniard, but he and his wife continued to run it every you know, day to day. He was on every expulsion list on the British and Americans, including the final list of 104. However, because his wife was Spanish and because he, is, he lived in Spain since 1914 and because of his contacts, he was never arrested or threatened. In fact, during this time, he was awarded a medal by Franco for his service during the Civil War to the nationalist side. Um, he lived in Bilbao till his death in 1982. However, there's no evidence he ever worked for the Spanish government or military at any point after that. So one could argue if the American concern was one of spoilers in all three of these cases, the policy was successful. Two of them were, one of them left on their own, one was deported, the other basically ran a typewriter business 
for the rest of his life. Obviously, a lot of the fear of spoilers or the, the fear of werewolf was, um, you know, a lot of hype, a lot more fear than turned out to be the case in reality. But nonetheless, there were extensive policies built around these fears or these concerns. I think this policy of obnoxious Germans is one of them. And so I think it can change our conception of denazification. In many ways, denazification failed. Uh, in many ways, the fears were unfounded. But the amount of effort that went into these policies and the depth of these policies from military to intelligence um, to embassy and State Department groups working on these policies, I think does suggest that there's some significance uh, to considering these as an important part of post-war sort of planning or planning for the post-war period by the U.S. Uh, and to a lesser extent the British. Thank you. Any questions? Yeah. yeah would you uh, trace the, uh, from the Allied standpoint, the American standpoint, um, over time, it must have been gradually their glide started less over, they became less and less interested in getting these guys. Mm -hmm. Early on, presumably the threat was something you could take pretty seriously, but after a while, mm -hmm. it clearly suggests there wasn't much there. Mm -hmm. but is there a change of po effective policy, maybe not official policy, but just lack of, lack of effort to try to get these guys and by 48, that, the, this list of, of the final 104 in, in uh, October of 1947, uh, you, you know, denazification was on the wane everywhere, but there was this decision by members of the U.S. Embassy in Madrid that they had to make one final push. So that's coming up with this list of 104. Uh, no, these are still pretty significant individuals, and they, in fact, increased increased intelligence surveillance of these people after they created this list. So they could go back, and they go back to the Spanish almost every month. Look what so-and-so is doing. You know, so there's actually a, about six months where this policy is really, um, it's the final push, but they put the resources into it, and then it kind of peters out by middle of 48. Um, and there's also debates within the U.S. Embassy. Those who were there in 45 want to see this through. Those who come later are less likely. And the American ambassador is that's appointed in 45 is removed in 46. They don't replace, Truman does not replace him with another ambassador to underline you know, you know, the significance of um, how much the U.S. wants to see Franco change. But the charge d'affaires that is sent in his place is very pro-Franco and, and is leading that opposition to the people he's you know, under him. Um, only in the sense that that explains why this policy becomes less significant, I think. And I, I think there's a reconsideration of what it takes to be a good ally. In the first case, Franco had to prove he was not fascist, you, you know, to fit in with the post-war settlement. By 47, he doesn't have to do that. All he has to do is not be communist to prove he's a good ally. And there's a policy, George Kennan writes... Uh, a policy paper in October of 47 that basically says Spain has basically done what we wanted them to do. Yeah, in 1946, there's a significant debate. Um, uh, yes, it was um, first proposed by France and then and then by Poland, and then there was a debate in uh, the UN and the United States. <coughs> The British get up and say, this is ridiculous, Spain's great. The U.S. says, we can't say that, but we can't, we can't support this either. And then by 47 and 48, the U.S. is willing to stand up with the British and say that too. Um, and that's 1948. They start negotiating on U.S. military bases in Spain, which comes to pass in 53. Mm -hmm. And Yale, of course, picks up one of the, um, at one stage, looks like one of the great ones. But 
comes on the market uh, been stolen from Central Europe, and it comes on the market in Spain in 1957. Now, why is it three million dollars? Of course, it's a forgery. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's indicative of the fact that there's a lot of laundering of stolen property in Spain. That's mm -hmm. The question is this: um, between 1442, this non-belligerence uh, is is very close to war, as you correctly said. I mean, not only is there a, a, a the blue legion which are volunteers, it's also the blue division which are regular units of the Spanish army which are rotated onto the eastern front, mm -hmm. and also the six warships uh, which go into the Baltic uh, and fight with the Germans against the Russians. Uh, the Spanish troops get up to some very unpleasant things. So my question is this, is there any attempt to go after them after fortified the war Um not as war criminals. Some of some people associated with the Blue Division are on this list of repatriation that they could come back if they found themselves in the American zone. They could then be charged with war crimes. Um, the Spanish government wasn't going to send back any Spaniards, but there were a couple of Germans. Uh, Munoz Grande, who was the commander of the Blue Division, his official translator given to him by the German army so he could translate the orders, goes back to Spain with him in 44. doesn't stop by Germany. Uh, and he's on this list, you, you know, throughout. So so within, I mean, they're pushing, they're pushing the bounds of neutrality or non-belligerency, but they realize that there's no point in going there. There's no Spaniard that's going to uh, do that. And in fact, they also work to facilitate. There's about 300,000 Spaniards in Germany at the end of the war as laborers. And the, the U.S. and the British say, we will put our troops on trains as they go through France, because there was a fear that the French might attack them if they thought they were Spaniards, and that American army security would be on that train the whole way to the Spanish border to get these people home. Um, so they didn't want any sort of charge that, you know, they were treating the Spaniards like Germans. So they're pushing neutrality in one way and then very respectful of it in other ways. I have a question a little different than what we've covered. Uh, I know a number of airmen that were shot down over Europe, and if they could make it down through France and Belgium and get to the Pyrenees, uh, and the French people would get them uh, to, so to speak, the line between France and Spain. They would get them to there, and then uh, the guys could get down through Spain, eventually down to Gibraltar. Mm -hmm. Do you suppose that was probably strictly a financial uh, agreement that the United States had with Spain I don't know if it was a financial agreement. Again, that was a position Spain took with any refugees that crossed into the border, that they'd get them, they, they couldn't stay, but they'd get them back to where they wanted to go. Um, they did the same with civilians, French civilians who came across, um, were interned, but in, refu in refugee camps, I mean, not 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 that they were fun, but they weren't prison camps. Um, you know, Jews who made it through were allowed to keep going on to Portugal. They couldn't stay in Spain, but they could move on to Portugal. So that was the general policy. And they did facilitate getting to Gibraltar, you know, to wreck. They didn't want them to hang around in Spain. <laughs> so they facilitated, but I don't think it was a financial arrangement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, very similar at the start in Argentina. The difference um, is that there's, there's not the same presence in Argentina when the war ends of Germans. The Germans themselves didn't put a lot of resources. I mean, they had contacts, they had agents in Argentina, but the, the list that's prepared for Argentina of deportees is 60 uh, compared to the 1,600 in Spain. Um, and then the real problem becomes 
the people who enter after the war ends into Argentina through the rat lines and things, and the U.S. government doesn't have a legal position to request those people because they weren't there. The legal reason it can do this is you were working for the German government. The German government no longer exists. We are now the German government, so you can we're ordering you back. They can't do that for people who enter after the war ends, who enter on their own as individuals. Um, then, it, then it becomes an immigration issue. If Argentina wants to admit them as immigrants, that's their sovereign power. So they certainly are tracking them, um, but they're not... Uh, they, they can't make the same demands after that initial sort of period in, in the summer of 45. But they're certainly suspicious, and they know why these people are going, are going there. Um, I could I can't find anyone that actually works officially for the government. The Spanish government basically sends out the word that this is not going to be tolerated. You, you know there was a, there were a case of 18 individuals who were hired by the Spanish Air Force, uh, and they were called technicians. So they had they had advanced knowledge of maintenance of airplanes, when in fact they were all SS agents. Um, and, this, and when the Americans present very definitive evidence naming these 18 individuals, those people lose their jobs. Um, so they were caught out the one time is the only case I've found. And basically the word went out. And that's one reason why these people hook onto the rat line taking them to Argentina, because many of them did not want to just settle down and work a normal job. They wanted to stay in intelligence or in the military and by 1947, the Argentine Air Force is in Spain recruiting these individuals. So Spain is clear, you can stay, we're not going to arrest you or deport you, but you can't work you know, for us. And then the Argentinian government comes and says, well, you can work for us. And so that's what gets them to Argentina in many cases of these, of these lower level individuals, obviously not the big names who are bound for Argentina from the start. Mm-hmm. What realistically could they think would happen to these people? Incarceration, execution, yeah. the risk, what would be there? Uh, they, they vary by person. But, you know. Initially, they all went to this one camp. There's, um, there's, there's civilian internment camps throughout Germany. There's one where anyone who's designated, who's coming from a neutral country, goes in the U.S. zone, and the British have a similar section at one of their camps if, if they end up in the British zone. Um, so they're, they're, they always initially go to these camps and are then interrogated, usually within a week or two of arrival. And then there is a decision made as to, do we need to interrogate this person anymore? Do we need to hold on to them for any reason? Or can they go? If they are released, so the case that I gave of Jaranowski, who's sort of the low-level running or runner of the agents, is in the, the Hohenasberg camp for about four weeks. Then he is told to go back to his hometown, and at that point he will undergo local denazification procedures, whatever exists in his, his in his hometown in Germany. Yeah, and those are, records are kind of hard to get a hold of, so it's kind of unclear unless you know exactly where he's going to sort of trace those cases. In the case of Carl Arnold, who was the head of the SD in Spain and had been the head of the SD in Argentina before he was sent to Spain in 43. As I said, he's interned from 46 through 48, and then, I, then the paper's trail sort of runs out. So um, he's not brought to trial, but he's deemed a security risk. Um, you, you know that there's some significance. Some of the individuals who are released return to Spain, usually with travel permits given to them by the U.S. Army which makes the OSS and CIA in Spain furious because they're like, we just deported, got this guy deported after working for a year and he was in 
a camp in Germany for two months, and then he was released, and then the U.S. Army said he could go back to Spain. Um, so there's not a total understanding of the policy. Um, usually those that came back were ones who had Spanish wives or, or, or something like that. They're not, they're not coming back primarily for political reasons. Um, you know, and the others, yeah, if they, they get released and they go, th- they're supposed to go through the local denazification and then what happens happens. And then by the time they would, this would happen, since the first group is deported in December of 45, uh, by middle, uh, late, last part of 46 and into 47, denazification is being decentralized down to the local level. Germans judging other Germans. So it's unlikely that they would have gotten any jail term out of that. You know, they would have time served in the internment camp would have been good enough. A couple of them, uh, one of them who was the, one of the top five SD agents ends up being ambassador to Brazil for West Germany in the 60s. Yeah, yeah, no, that, no, 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 no. From a Spanish standpoint, the, the punishment for most of these people would be extremely minor. Yes. Detaining for over a month or something and go back home. Yes, yeah, unless they were sort of higher up in, in SD. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's right. Just for maybe about what, 5, 10 percent or something at most? Mm-hmm. Yeah, basically that last list of 104 and yeah, yeah. maybe 30 others that had been sent prior to that. Thanks very much for coming. Appreciate it.